Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. Since the enactment of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, American collective bargaining law in the private sector has relied on exclusive monopoly representation at the enterprise level. In layman's terms, a single labor union forcing all employees in a designated portion of an employer's workforce to accept a single union-negotiated contract. But unions and their allies have eyed a different approach, that of the social democracies of continental Europe, which practice so-called sectoral bargaining to set nationwide or region-wide contracts, while workplace representation is handled by union-influenced works councils. Joining me today to discuss these proposed expansions of unions' coercive power and possible alternatives to the current American or European coercive models is Vinny Vernuccio, a senior fellow at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Uh, Vinny, before we dive in, could you give our listeners a little about your background? Sure. Hey, thank you for having me on. So I'm a senior fellow at the Mackinac Center um, Research Institution based in Midland, Michigan. I've actually published on voluntary unionism a couple years back, had a study called Unionization for the 21st Century, uh, which details how if unions embrace a purely voluntary model and act like professional service organizations, they can actually grow and expand. But they can only do this if they give up the compulsion, give up the politics, and uh, provide services that both employees and employers want to utilize. All right. So uh, as as nice as that purely voluntary system would be, that's not where we are. So let we got to before we talk about how uh, the unions and their allies want to change uh, labor collective bargaining policy, uh, let's set the stage as to where we are now. Uh, Currently, under the National Labor Relations Act in the private sector, except in the railroads, but the railroads are weird, uh, you have exclusive monopoly bargaining at the enterprise level. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's cut through the jargon. Essentially, it means that, um, you know, you use the term monopoly. That's exactly the right term without getting too wonky. It means that once a union organizes a worksite, they have what's known as exclusive representation. That means that they get to represent all employees at that worksite, whether the employees want to be represented or not. And that has no, um, and, and whether or not a state is right to work has no bearing on that. So whether you're in the District of Columbia, which is which is a forced unionism jurisdiction, you have to pay dues if you're covered by the contract, or you're in Michigan, which for a few years has been a right-to-work state and you don't, you're still covered by the contract. That's exactly right. So in um, the forced unionism states like Pennsylvania, um, you don't have to be forced to pay full dues. And, you know, the unions say, oh, no one's forced to pay us dues. Well, you know, the catch is that workers in those states without right to work where unions can actually get a worker fired for not paying them, they have to pay the vast majority of their dues. It's what is known as agency fees. Yeah, they, 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 the right- they, call, the, they call them agency fees, but they are functionally dues. <laughs> Essentially. And then in a right to work state, workers actually have the choice whether or not to pay those dues. Unions doing a good job. Worker can pay them, but they can choose not to. However, the different there is no difference between the two states in that those workers, whether they're paying or not in a right to work state or not, 
They're stuck under that union contract, whether they want to be or not. And they're stuck accepting union representation, whether they want it or not. And the union is stuck representing workers that aren't paying them and frankly may not want that representation. Right. And you you use the word stuck, but that's the the unions actually want it this way. The unions gain a benefit from that monopoly status. Uh, both in terms of being the only liaison between the workforce and the employer and uh, in terms of not being able to have counter negotiations uh, with the between an independent group of employees and the employer, which is why, uh, you know, with the in the public sector where you've had the Janice, Janice Viasmi decision, which basically made the entire public sector right to work, unions have said, that they are willing to continue exclusive bargaining, monopoly bargaining, even under even with the understanding that they aren't going to be able to to force the payment of those agency fees. When the alternative so, is members only unions. That's right. So unions call them uh, free riders. I like to call them forced riders because they're forced to accept that representation. And, uh, you know, unions do like to complain, oh, we're stuck representing people, whether it's in a right to work state or for the public, the entire public sector now, thanks to Janice, represent people that aren't paying us. So at back a couple of years back, we actually came up with another concept called Workers' Choice, which was incredibly simple. It said that, hey, unions, you don't want to work, represent workers that aren't paying you. These workers don't want your representation, so let them out. Let them act like almost the 90% of the rest of the workers in the economy that do not, uh, that are not under a union contract and represent themselves. And you know what? I'm still waiting for the unions to get on board with that concept. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so, uh, amazingly, that ha- hasn't happened. So it, it seems to be a little bit of lip service on the free rider angle. But uh, yes, you're exactly and, and correct. Of course, what sectoral bargaining is, is it would like to make those 90 percent of uh, non-union contracted workers into forced riders. Uh, you know, in your you uh, wrote a recent article for Real Clear Markets. You mentioned that that was straight out of Bernie Sanders's uh, plan. He is, of course, far from alone. Uh, and again, even you have some voices on the right now proposing this European-style sectoral bargaining. Uh, what are the key differences between the European-style sectoral bargaining and the American system? Well, here's the thing. For all the bellyaching we've heard about, you know, free riders or forced riders, um, that's something that it looks like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and, you know, many others are trying to actually impose. Um, And you're exactly right. Uh, What sectoral bargaining means is that unions could set wages and benefits for entire industries, even if the employees at a company have said no to union. So me, to give you me, a concrete me, yeah, example. Yeah, I'll let you go with your concrete example first, and I'll go with my concrete example. <laughs> sure. So we've seen at Volkswagen, we've seen at multiple auto manufacturers in the South, uh, workers have repeatedly said no to the UAW. And you know now that, you that look UAW at the UAW being, UAW the United, f- being the United Auto Workers, the 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 Detroit. Auto Workers Union that has been embroiled in the largest union corruption scandal since the breakup of since the uh, government government takeover of the Teamsters in the early nineties. 
Uh, massive, massive corruption at the UAW, indictments and convictions and uh, please, you name it. Um, even before that happened, uh, the Southern auto workers were repeatedly saying no to the UAW. But here's the issue. Um, if, you know, the Bernie Sanders plan or Elizabeth Warren or, you know, others uh, institute this, you know, essentially massive rewrite of American labor law and institute sectoral bargaining, those Southern auto workers would be stuck with the UAW representing them, even though they've repeatedly told the UAW no, because the UAW would probably be the de facto union on these wage and benefit boards. So they're not just negotiating with the big three that they've unionized, they're negotiating with all manufacturers across the country, all auto manufacturers across the country. And that's that's an interesting example from the sort of uh, the collective side and the employer side, but I, I'll give one from the individual side. Uh, you know, I... This is, you know, the Influence Watch project uh, podcast is a project of the Capital Research Center. We publish a magazine. So sort of I, Michael Watson, sitting here at my desk, am sort of a in the journalism business. And the union of the metropolitan newspapers, the big journalism union, <laughs> is the News Guild of the CWA, the News Guild of the Communications Workers of America. Communications Workers of America is for as left-wing to radical left as the big American labor unions can be, as be, as the UAW can be, as the SCIU can be, as the AFL as a whole can be, the CWA is more. Uh, Larry Cohen, the longtime head of the CWA, now uh, I think he either currently does or formerly chaired Bernie Sanders' campaign in exile, the, uh, I forget the name of it, but... Um, so they're, they're, you know, they're pretty radical left. And the News Guild, uh, you know, our listeners might remember the News Guild from the whole brouhaha over Senator Tom Cotton's op-ed in the New York Times, and that it was the News Guild that organized the New York Times staffers to say that the mere act of publishing a Republican political official who has been elected by the people of the state of Arkansas— uh, to a constitutional position that merely publishing his, you know, his beliefs about public policy makes them unsafe, which is actually a technical labor law term that makes it a collective bargaining issue. That was the news, you know, the, the reporting was all that the News Guild organized that. So I, as a writer for a, I think we publish what, eight or nine, you know, we publish a certain number of magazines a year, would have my contract negotiated by the News Guild. And I, you know, I may not be a down-the-line, believe everything that Tom Cotton believes, but censoring him from the public square is not my values. And do I trust the News Guild to negotiate a contract that is in my interest? The answer is no. <laughs> You know, and well, that's right. And no, go ahead. Oh, I, I mean, you know, you, you see that with traditional unions as it is today. That uh, you know, uh, you see, you know, depending on the election, about a third to forty percent of union members, you know, typically vote Republican. But uh, unions give um, you know vast majority. It's, it's ninety percent. Ninety percent of the electoral fund 
the opt-in electoral fund money, but when you look at the uh, the grants to outside organizations, the you know support for groups like the Center for American Progress, support for groups like uh, all the community organizing groups, that goes up to ninety nine. Nearas makes no difference. A hundred percent going to lefts, uh, going to the left and to left progressives. Yeah, but I do have a touch of a silver. It's not much, but a touch of a silver lining to you. Um, if you do get unfortunately organized or co-opted into the Writers Guild by sectoral bargaining, um, you will actually be a touch better than most union members or most unionized workers under a union contract because uh, Writers Guild, entertainment unions, uh, sports unions, they thankfully at least negotiate a floor for wages and benefits, but they don't negotiate a ceiling. For most unions and most unionized workers, what they have is essentially they have step or grade increases to borrow a term from the you know from the government sector, um, but it's a seniority system, and the only way they can get a raise doesn't matter how hard they work, doesn't matter how effective they There's are, actually how legi- good at their job. I, I remember there was legislation proposed a couple years ago to allow uh, in. In, collect, in a collective bargained contract to just allow employers to offer merit raises, and that was shot down largely with the, uh, largely at the urging of the labor unions. That's right. It was called the Raise Act, um, and it simply said, "Okay, take away the ceiling. If uh, an employer sees the how much value an employee is bringing to the company or the business, they should be allowed to give them a raise, and they you know shouldn't be limited by a union collective bargaining agreement." Essentially, it said workers deserve to be paid more, and um, unfortunately, that was at odds with a lot of collective bargaining agreements. It never went anywhere. But you know, if there are these wage boards and benefit boards by sector total bargaining, you know, my fear is that, yeah, we're going to see that seniority system across industries in the U.S. and, um, you know, non-unionized facilities that pride themselves on, you know, entrepreneurship, on the ability to work harder and make more. They're going to see those type of systems uh, fall by the wayside for the unionized one-size-fits-all seniority system that, you know, may have worked around the industrial revolution but unfortunately today is pretty outdated and I think that's one of the big reasons why you're seeing um, non-unionized companies be able to excel a little more than some unionized ones sure uh, so we've, we've we've now discussed sectoral bargaining but now there, let's look at one of the other proposed European imports uh, works councils uh, you, you, you may remember, I mean, you, I remember you discussed Volkswagen and the UAW a little while ago, like there was a proposal to have a works council as part of their UAW organizing there that then got laid upon the table when the UAW was not organized because the workers rejected it. Uh, so how, how do works councils work? What do they do? And how would they affect the power of big labor over workers? Well, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, what was interesting is that the concept of the Works Council and what VW actually proposed in Tennessee looked pretty interesting. It was, hey, we're a company. We voluntarily will work with organizations of employees. 
And um, if they meet th certain thresholds, we will give them certain access and we will get, work with them in certain different ways. It was completely voluntary. And at first, now, now, the I'll, management... I'll, I'll, just just as a, as a note, it may have been voluntary at Volkswagen. In the European countries, it isn't. I've uh, Germany has a very, very long, basically constitutional law called the Works Constitution Act, uh, which establishes in great detail how these entities are to be created, who votes for them, you know, what employees can do what, the special rights that attend to an elected works counselor. Uh, so so the, the European Works Council and what you're talking about are slightly different and, in, and different in important ways. <laughs> They are, and they are different in important ways. And um, I was definitely referring to the voluntary um, idea that Volkswagen was putting forward. Uh, well, that actually, I should take it back that at first, Volkswagen and the UAW were putting forward. And I think Volkswagen got a little blindsided. They actually took the UAW at their word, um, saying they wanted these type of voluntary works councils like Volkswagen management in Germany were used to. However, what eventually happened and was the UAW used it as a stalking horse to try to organize uh, the entire plant. And that's what it kind of unraveled. But you know, the point was, if they did go ahead and say, okay, we, we want this voluntary association where we can work with the company, we're going to provide value, the company is willing to recognize us to represent some employees, only those employees that want to be represented, and it was totally voluntary, that could work. That's a good idea. But the problem, using it as a stalking is, horse. But the problem is current right. law. One of the problems with current law is that on the again, here's where I have to put on my I am not a lawyer hat. But under the my understanding of the current interpretation of the National Labor Relations Act is that's probably illegal or that or that's legally gray area, tricky stuff. It's gray area. You've, you're seeing um, lawyers and academics on both sides of the debate, and it's uh, basically the members-only debate for members-only unions. And it, it, the weight of that is starting to come in favor of, yes, you can have a members-only union, um, but, and the but is the key word there. You, you can have it. You can have an association of workers that they had together. Um, the but, and this is what UAW took advantage of is that if a union then comes in and, you know, what's known as rating, um, a union can come in and basically take over and become an exclusive representative. So, right. so, so if you had, a, if you had a, so if you had a voluntary bargaining association or a voluntary representational organization, and then, and then a union shows up and wins a labor board election, like the UAW tried, then tough, you're now under regular labor union law. Exactly. So um, if you if you're a members only union, you don't have the same ability to keep other unions out that a uh, you know traditional exclusive representation union or exclusive representative union would be able to do. Um, which you know, if it's voluntary, you can have multiple unions, but that means that if one comes and organizes everybody, they could kick everyone else out. They also cannot, and this is a good thing, members only cannot compel an employer to negotiate. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, th there's several things that unions don't get with a members only union. I think that if they embraced it, that they would 
be able mm. to expand as and it would all be voluntary but that's why today a lot of unions or almost all unions don't embrace that theory because they want a that monopoly they want that compulsion they mm. want to be able to force employers to work with them and they want to be able to force representation on employees unfortunately i think that's why you see union membership plummeting around the country for the last couple of decades um, is because that's an outdated model. And essentially and then, and then, they're using and then, exclusive... you, and then when you append the the outdated, the outdated model, the out, the uh, the reliance on coercion rather than service provision with a political and advocacy agenda that is staunchly partisan, far more partisan than most special interest groups tend to be, uh, you know, again, you've alienated I mean, it, again, depending on the election, you, you mentioned it's between a third and 40 percent. You know, you've alienated that portion of your membership, prospective membership, their families. Um, and you may leave them questioning what they're getting for for all the for any of the money they're putting into it. Yeah, even before the politics, just going back to, uh, you know, special privileges, essentially they're government granted crutches. For the unions, it's, you know, they're holding the unions up, the unions are leaning on them and relying on them, but they're slowing the unions down. And, you know, if the unions put down those crutches and embrace this voluntary unionism members only idea that, you know, frankly, could be is probably legal today. However, there is that. But yeah, with some, that's with some how they can have. Exactly. That's how they can have the freedom to, you know, grow and expand and, you know, get back to representation. Shocking. Get back yeah, to yeah. representing the, workers the, 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 as the opposed idea, to the, the, the yeah, politics. The idea of, the negotiating, of negotiating and representing rather than, you know, acting as a as a as a political and ideological special interest group. <laughs> Which can alienate a lot of their membership. Yep. All right, Vinny, uh, thank you for joining us. That is our show for this week. We encourage you to subscribe on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.